This is the EPLOG audio experience. Quick disclaimer for a podcast, the SOS show, points discussed in this podcast should not be relied upon as conclusive medical advice in any case. The host shall not be a substitute for proper medical professional. You must seek professional help in case of any requirement. Thank you. Hi guys, welcome to the SOS show with me, Suchita, and we are back after a brief break due to festive season in India. And today we have with us Maitri Mishra who heads the work on mental health and criminal justice at Project 39A, a criminal justice research and litigation center at the National Law University, Delhi. She is the lead author of Death Worthy, Project 39A's latest report, which is an interdisciplinary study of the death penalty from the lens of mental health. An important, insightful and timely conversation. Stay tuned. Hi, Maitri. Welcome to our podcast, The SOS Show. And thank you for joining in. And I read your amazing, uh, you, you and your team's uh, report on mental health and illnesses amongst the death row prisoners and why should we pay attention to the lives of those who receive the harshest punishment in our criminal justice system. I think it's such a such an important and interesting topic to talk about. A lot of things might just come out of the discussion. So thank you for being a part of this. Hi, hi, Suchita. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on the show and having you know read the report, engaging with it. I think it's important for people from different communities, people doing advocacy of varying uh, nature to engage in interdisciplinary um, issues. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I thank you so much for that. Yes, absolutely. I, I totally, totally agree with you. Tell me, Maitri, a, a couple of terms before we actually, I, I start shooting some questions to you is one that, you know, you're talking about mental illnesses among death row prisoners. So just to clarify to our listeners, how would you define death row prisoners? So death row prisoners is a short form that is basically connoting prisoners who've been sentenced to uh, with the harshest punishment, the death penalty. Uh, now, death row is uh, being on death row or being sentenced to death uh, means living in certain kinds of conditions. There mm-hmm. are certain special rules which then get applied to you, mm-hmm. um, such as uh, not being able to, not being allowed to work by prison manuals, not being allowed to engage uh, in educational activities. So life on death row is a separate experience for prisoners and it's not the same as what you would call the general prison population. Ru- the rules are different. One of the, in, in law, if I were to just talk about the law, by law, death row prisoners are con- to be considered as prisoners who've been sentenced to death only after the uh, final rejection of their mercy petitions by the president of India. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. the law that has been set down. Mm -hmm. But what we found and what we gave primacy to in our report Mm. was the experience of the person who was sentenced to death. So while they may not by law, uh, in this case called Sunil Batra, Mm -hmm. while the law might be that they are not prisoners sentenced to death yet, Uh, The reality is that they are sentenced to death and they are condemned from the moment that the punishment is given to them, 
which is by the trial court even if the punishment is not ultimately confirmed yet the mm-hmm. experience of the unique experience of death row begins from the moment the punishment is given and that is what we accorded primacy to in the report mm-hmm. and when you guys were doing the research and the report was formed would you like to sort of elaborate just in case for our listeners in terms of to get a broader understanding that how do you go about it in terms of the cast did you focus on that did you focus on the age group did you focus on the offenses right. uh, the kind so, of offenses they've done just a broader perspective of it right so i'll just uh, maybe lay out for the listeners the main mm. aims of this report uh, mm. the aim there are three main aims essentially the first was to as uh, suchita you said to look at mental illnesses and psychiatric concerns among prisoners who've been sentenced to death or the death row population the other was to look at issues of intellectual disability uh, and this is an important issue because in india there is actually no jurisprudence on intellectual disability and the death penalty even though international human rights law prohibits imposition of the death sentence on persons with intellectual disability uh, and the third aim was to look at the psychological consequences of being sentenced to death uh, what we are calling the pains of death uh, pains of death row uh, the the psychological consequences of being held death worthy uh, so those were the three broad aims and uh, so the idea was not so much to engage with the socio economic demography of the prisoners as such but what do those socio economic demography what experiences does that demography entail really so we did one report already uh, it's called the death penalty india report which we did in 2016 which we released in 2016 um and where we interviewed all of india's death row prisoners and that was a socio economic demography and how that engages with the criminal justice system and the death penalty this was to take it a step further to say what is that experience what is the experience of the of of poverty right uh, and what we found is that a majority of death row prisoners uh come from uh, economically marginalized communities uh, they are largely should you in our uh, sample we interviewed 88 death row prisoners and their families uh, across five states so the states were delhi chatisgarh karnataka kerala and madhya pradesh uh, and we found not only are they poor they are from largely uh, the majority was uh, scheduled caste uh, other backward classes forward caste comprised only 10 out of the 88 prisoners we interviewed uh, the majority of the prisoners that we interviewed were male uh, we only interviewed three females and 51 of them uh, 51 of the prisoners out of the 88 that we interviewed were under the age of 30 when the offense was uh, committed uh, so really young population largely male overwhelmingly poor overwhelmingly from a uh, either scheduled caste scheduled tribe or other backward class so that would be the social demography uh, 
mm-hmm. yeah right right matthew mentioned um, uh, in the report as well that psychiatric illnesses that they were suffering from was major depressive disorders there was generalized anxiety disorder substance abuse and a couple of more things that you guys have mentioned which i would sort of like to talk a bit in detail but just to sort of just, just to understand a bit more in terms of where did you guys sort of figure out if the illnesses in some of them already present before they the, before they sort of were imprisoned while they committed the crime or did it develop over time post uh, they got caught and were given the death row right so to come to the conclusion about what are the kinds of psychiatric illnesses present in this population mm. we conducted a semi structured qualitative interview and we mm. administered certain psychometric tools tools which screen for uh, mental illness and then a clinical diagnosis was made so the interviews were conducted largely by mental health professionals and the lawyers were not the main people conducting the interviews uh, because this is a field which uh, mental health professionals are essential to obviously so what we found was yes there were prisoners who already had a mental illness for instance mm-hmm. uh, i can give you the example of dharmaketu or rivan who had or in in prison they were diagnosed uh, dharmaketu was diagnosed with psychosis nos and mm-hmm. uh, rivan was diagnosed with uh, depression with abnormal behavior and they were being treated for that in prison but before they entered prison they were actually not being treated for that and the reason for that is even though they knew that there was something so to say quote unquote wrong with them um for instance rivan's brother talks about um the elder brother he told us that rivan developed madness when he was very young they know it but they weren't being treated for it so yes there we did come across people who had pre-existing illnesses and we came across people who at the time of the interview and i think that is why it's crucial to highlight that this is at the time of the interview that they were under active episodes of the illness right so pre-existing illnesses the the hmm. the prisoners who had is the law giving them any special treatment there with a vis uh, you know when they are being uh, when the judgment is coming when the trial is going or is it just in the same lines as somebody who has developed uh, while being in the prison right so i'll just give you a quick recap of how in what manner does mental illness or as mm-hmm. criminal law understands it unsoundness of mind how it interacts with criminal law and there are multiple stages at which it can come into play the first one is when um it may appear to the judge uh, that the person is what the law calls is of unsound mind and if the person is found to have a mental illness by virtue of which they are unable to mount their defense uh, the trial can be postponed the trial is suspended uh, till the person becomes fit again so till they are treated uh, and they become better and functional the trial can be postponed this happened in dharmaketu's case um where the trial was suspended because he was uh, ill at that time he was uh, not in a position to understand what was happening around him in very lay person terms 
the second stage or the second time that the law can look at mental illness is the insanity defense which is that by virtue of again unsoundness of mind you did not know the nature or consequence of your actions of the offense uh, that you've been charged with and you can be acquitted if you are if the defense is successful now we did not look at whether the person might have been or was under an episode such that the insanity defense should have been taken could have been taken in that that was not our concern because i think a retrospective inquiry is extremely complex particularly one that talks about the offense so we did not look at that uh, but it is possible that some of them were in fact under an episode when uh, they uh, engaged in the violent act and subsequently the law can also look at issues of mental illness at the sentencing stage that is when i say it's a sentencing stage what i mean is when they are being handed over the punishment so you once you are held guilty is only when can you be punished right so um at that time the law can again look at men, if there are issues of mental illness but there is no clarity on what mental illnesses should the law look at do what mental illnesses become relevant for the purposes of punishment there's it's not very clear but it should be yes i think what happens in criminal law is that you start with a even though it's presumed innocent until guilty you look at the defense and you look at particularly uh, mental illnesses as are they offering an excuse do they just want to be let off easily you know that's how that you start being looked at as a result of that the law then cannot quite grapple with the fact that a person who might be uh, under severe depression is a vulnerable individual is an individual on whom the punishment is going to be way more magnified than a person without depression and so the law becomes suspicious and it's generally the stigma of mental illness you don't understand mental illnesses you don't understand how they affect a person and therefore you not quite able to grapple with it uh, but you understand schizophrenia because you've seen uh, people act mad in movies and media and you know that very uh, the bizarre behavior assumptions uh, yeah Hmm. yeah that you understand that the law understands that okay if the person has schizophrenia does it understand or it's assuming they'll understand it understands that's a good question that's a very good question no it does not understand it uh, misunderstands it rather hmm. Uh, hmm. and it assumes that it understands so hmm. for instance uh, let's say even in within the context of the death penalty hmm. um you will have you have judgments to say that people with severe schizophrenia should be given perhaps a lesser sentence mm. now mm. what is the rationale for making that distinction particularly because somebody with schizophrenia could actually be functioning better than somebody who's in a severe episode of depression but why have you made that distinction why does the person who has depression not accorded the same dignity as a person who might have schizophrenia mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. dignity and punishment and mm-hmm. and i think the we need to seriously th- start thinking about ensuring dignity while punishing and 
when you ignore illnesses like depression and anxiety and uh, the consequence might be suicide uh, or thoughts about suicide there is something fundamentally wrong then about how the law understands mm-hmm. mental illnesses so that was a really good question that no the yeah. law does not understand mental yeah so are you telling me that the law is absolutely not cognizant of the fact of mental illnesses the zero understanding when it is delivering judgment on these people right so here when i am referring to law i am only meaning criminal law hmm i am not meaning uh, laws like the mental health care act which do have yeah. a definition of mental illness right so i am yes. not talking yeah. about hmm. i don't want to use this phase but let's say i'm not talking about rights based laws mm-hmm. um yes. i'm talking about acute centric laws such as criminal mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. uh where you're not where where whether you'll be accorded rights and dignity as a person with mental illness is suspect now while judging while delivering judgment uh, particularly in death penalty cases the court is meant to look at what is known as in law mitigating factors hmm. now these could be anywhere from well i'm saying anywhere but they are actually very limited uh, mitigating factors and part of the effort with this report is to say that individuals are complex and you can't break them down into five factors that mitigate the sentence you have to look at a much broader inquiry so the law may look at the judge may look at socio economic circumstances age family dependence um probability of reformation but mental illness needs to be diagnosed correct mm-hmm. if i don't know i have a mental illness uh, or at least i can't articulate it as such and i am coming as an accused i am largely you will find accused people from poor households much poor households households which don't have access to healthcare services households which when you're really ill you might go to the baba and get jhar phook done but mm. you don't have documents so mm. how am i going to even bring to the notice of court that i have a mental illness mm. particularly because the system is such that often the lawyers don't interact in great um depth with the clients they will meet them at court right you don't go and in- investigate into the life that's not the practice mm. uh, you don't go and talk to the families you don't go and talk to the person at length to be able to actually say i think there might be a mental illness and i think this person needs to be this needs to be brought to the attention of the courts but but, but all these of course cases are also pro bono right they they don't the lawyers do not get paid for it so the work we do at project 39a uh, so we are a criminal justice uh, research and legal aid center at national law university delhi we do all the cases pro bono uh, we are private pro bono legal representation uh, but we've also found that particularly at the trial stages uh, a lot of death row prisoners have spent immense amount of money mortgaged whatever little assets they may have had taken massive loans and debts and pushed themselves further into poverty because uh, 
while india does have a state provided legal aid system people are suspicious of the quality because of course we've been taught from the very beginning that if you throw money if you give money you will get better services right so they push themselves deeper and deeper into poverty at the trial levels and only later on when they can't afford any uh private money when they when they don't have the money they go to the state legal aid system uh, or people like us uh represent them pro bono um but um how do i say this our legal aid system comprises lawyers when i'm talking about a, the social history of the person when i'm talking about issues like mental Ill, illness i don't need a lawyer i need somebody skilled in that art i need a mental health professional i need a social worker and the legal aid our legal aid system does not recognize them as part of defense so that's something that should be recognized absolutely if you mm. if you are going to sentence people to death mm. you cannot be saying i don't have the resources to ensure that i have actually sentenced the right person to death hmm or the most death worthy to death the and right i know that that's for the right reasons the right person for the right reasons hmm, hmm. you can't hmm. cut short on resources and say i'm still going to sentence you to death hmm so that's, that's a huge flaw it's a huge flaw in the system that's i think it's a huge flaw in a legal aid system tell me matri you mentioned that psychiatric illnesses and as the question that i asked earlier i asked that was there already a pre-existing illness versus that's something that's developed over the time the third very interesting point that came to my mind when we talk about the flaw in the law when it comes right. to mental illnesses is that there's mention of the delays in the trial which mm. uh, which leads to a lot of things including anxiety including depression and you've you've taken a lot of examples here in terms of there is there is j there is uh, jram uh, major depressive disorders general anxiety disorders tell me in terms of how can you know just delaying the trial of the person can also that's that's another flaw that needs to be addressed in the system lead to severe mental illnesses in the prisoners right so i'm going to answer this from multiple angles actually hmm. Hmm. because i don't think it's simply a question of delay Mm. because it's a question of the accused person's constitutional fundamental rights that they have a proper trial mm. in fact many times and nowadays a lot people have you know they demand shorter trials mm. but sometimes what shorter trials do is they impinge on your constitutional fundamental right to a fair trial because you don't give enough enough time to uh closely read evidence to properly depose witnesses uh to for all of those procedures so i don't think delay is so i don't think delay is necessarily the problem mm i think the problem is at multiple levels one that you don't have a system where you, when you sentence somebody to death you are actually helping them adjust to that reality mm-hmm. now like you said lots of examples mm. uh, the report talks about where mm. um the prisoners thought they were going to be 
hanged the very next day or the same mm. day as they were sentenced to death that's mm. not true there is an appeals process and which i must again emphasize which must stay uh, we can't cut short constitutional rights but there is what is preventing us from ensuring that people who are once sentenced to death are explained and helped uh, to adjust to the new reality hmm i think that's okay. what's required i mm-hmm. think the, the and of course for me as the interviewer and for as a researcher and somebody who's thought about it sure i'm not the one who still experienced being sentenced to death so i'm talking by proxy yes no but but, but you saying adjust to the new reality which is yeah. getting sentenced which do you think that how do you, how do you propose the system help them to adjust to new reality i don't know i don't know how mm. you help somebody adjust to being told that mm. the aims of justice are going to be fulfilled if you and only you are going to die i don't know how you help somebody yeah. adjust to that you can't yeah. and that's why right. that's <laughs> how do you do that because they are going to ultimately die right so um, is there even a point correct maybe that's what the system is thinking that theek mm. hai uh but but the point is that again just coming back to the idea of dignity and punishment mm. that's why i think for the report it was so important to understand not just about how is life on death row but to understand how did it feel to be sentenced to death mm. um and because a lot of the psychological um warfare that's happening in their heads mm. is arising from the fact that they've been adjudged better dead than alive as the report puts it and is that a recipe for a mental health crisis yes as we can clearly see it is also to be understood i think it's important to remember that most of the people who are on death row are vulnerable people they've they have mental health vulnerabilities already which you have not looked at as uh, in law hmm. and then you put this additional trauma on them so right. we are creating it's a man made a law made crisis in my opinion it's a law made crisis you know uh, you, you've mentioned about the lot of individual the anecdotes are there in terms of jeram and parth and you know these guys who are sharing their stories uh, there's right. rivan psychosis so of course you guys have studied them and met them and interviewed them and all of them if i'm not wrong come from not very strong socio economic backgrounds so of course it's starting from that point you know uh, uh from wherever they are living from a very very young age yeah do you do you think that this is something that the the law or you know whoever is sort of taking care of uh the country the economy the government needs to sort of and and i'm sure there are being taken care of but the impact is not there in terms of getting them out from wherever they are at this point which can include substance abuse uh, in the kids which can include like you know uh, the, the socio economic circumstances i mean what do you propose is because actually the problem lies in the germ you know so 
So when it's already yeah. grown to become that big, yeah. but yeah. I mean, what can individuals do? I think as a as the state, as us, as society, I think we hmm. need to very carefully and seriously think about what is our social responsibility towards children. Hmm. We look at poverty, and we might think about poverty as an abstract. But what we found was as as almost a companion to poverty as almost a consequence of poverty so in other words the experience of poverty is extremely mm. debilitating for children because mm. your your parents are busy trying to cobble together one meal so you don't have a nurturing environment at home as a child you probably need to actually start contributing to that already very little income so you are not mm. going to school not going to school means forget education forget the fact that you are not getting formal education you don't have access to if you are not going to school you don't have access to spaces that are friendly to children that are safe spaces for children um, mm. you are not interacting with peers your own age you are entering the adult workforce so as a child you are getting um no nurturing environment you are being neglected emotionally you are probably being abused physically and sexually emotionally of course and you are having to deal with all of these things so so we need to really start thinking about if we want to have a healthy population and i mean both in terms of mental health but also in terms of violence le- less violent population you need to start from the very beginning uh, because i don't know surprisingly unsurprisingly the adversities that we looked at during childhood hmm. they are this they are common determinants of both mental illness later in life and violence later in life hmm. so for a overall healthy population you need to start from there when you introduce the death penalty it's not stopping criminal or i'm not going to use the word criminal actually i'm going to use violent it's not stopping violent behavior because the the origin of that violent behavior origin of violence aggression is entirely out of the control of the child it starts from them as children hmm. and we neglected them as children but the person is being punished also in our name so to me it's entirely illogical that people are being punished in our name as you know a lot of death penalty judgments will say there there's public outrage and the conscience of the society has been shocked and it of course some of the crimes are heinous but but you also sort of mentioned maitri in terms of social the psychosocial lens you've mentioned yeah. here uh, in the report as well but is there any even point of giving a death sentence uh, without considering the fact that where are all these uh, you know people coming from you know the, the, the socio economic uh, the strata that they're coming from the, the kind of neglect like you've mentioned childhood abuse neglect substance abuse or of this coming together to make them what they are as people right. and ultimately you no know, reaching so is that talk a bit in terms of psychosocial lens and how the law sees it it's giving punishment to these uh, prisoners 
like i said before a judge gives uh, the death sentence they have to look at factors pertaining to the offense mm-hmm. and factors pertaining to the offender so the individual um mm. these factors which pertain to the individual they are known as mitigating factors mm. Mm. uh and here is the opportunity for the law and the judge to understand to take the psychosocial lens um to conduct an in-depth inquiry into what does when you say that the person uh is poor what does that mean what does that history look like what does the history of poverty look like as an experience and an impact to the person there is the opportunity but again law wants to be so objective law wants to not deal with messy situations that it is now whittled down to a checklist approach so socio economic circumstances yes poor tick uh family dependence tick but what does socio economic circumstance indicate it indicates a completely different reality and the reality is something that the law doesn't want to engage with because i think it messes things up it creates for a messy narrative not a linear clean sort of, so of clinical they don't, they don't want to get in, in it they don't um because where is the space for it and even if you try and i think if you try and bring it uh forward the question would be as we mentioned in the report uh the mm. question would be so what and that's the wrong question to ask when mm. uh mm. when you're being told that this person was abused as a child had so many traumas had um these kinds of experiences what you're trying mm. to tell the judge and the law mm. is that this act was not committed in a vacuum and this person doesn't exist in a vacuum when we punish somebody to death what we are saying is you and only you are responsible but that's not true because like mm. i said there are social determinants to violent behavior mm. so social determinants social. yeah so yeah so yeah. so just underlining the point maitri social determinants to violent behavior and i have two questions here one question is that do you think or if 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 you guys have analyzed in terms of is this india slash developing country centric or do you think that this is what is everywhere including the developed world like the us the attitude mm-hmm. i'm talking about here and the second the second question is that because we are talking about social economic just tell me in terms of so if the person is from an affluent family and not mm-hmm. from a poor family uh, like for mm-hmm. example the cases that are going on right now Uh, the mm. son of a superstar in jail or you know the husband of a of a, of a prominent actress in jail do you think there the socio economic circumstances are considered by the law i'm going to answer this from a little bit early on in a criminal trial journey mm. and i'm going to this is this is my uh, answer i guess that mm. social economic circumstances interact with criminal justice processes very very um intricately and invisibly hmm. so for instance if you're a person who's poor you can't afford a good lawyer because good lawyers cost money like yeah. big lawyer names hmm. so you are already entering the system at a back foot 
materially you are you don't have the resources to be able to afford what would generally be considered a really good lawyer mm. now as a result of that there are lots of other small small injustices that invisible injustices that keep happening to you mm. so it's not as simple i think as to say rich people don't get jail but why is an overwhelming population on death row poor it's not because poor people commit more crimes that will be an mm-hmm. absurd mm-hmm. um answer it yeah. is because they get the least the poorest quality of legal representation so there mm-hmm. is a and and i think that's true across the world wherever there is the death penalty it perpetuates mm-hmm. already existing socio economic injustices and mm-hmm. you see a reflection of that in the death penalty yeah uh, and yeah like i said developed worlds the us there's a lot of research in the us to say that there's a racial there's racial bias built in because mm-hmm. the system is very exclusive in the sense of um ensuring quality justice it's exclusive mm-hmm. to a niche yeah uh, so the multiple level loopholes are there loopholes cracks mm. i think cracks is a better term mm. i think there are multiple cracks mm. at multiple places of multiple mm. intensities mm. so can the law per se itself do anything about it i think what can the law do about it well mm. uh, like i said india has a legal aid system mm. Mm. state provided legal aid ensure that it works so it's both mm. a question of law and governance and administration you have to because look law and punishment if you look at legal theory and they the theory for punishments have you know emerged from eons ago and very often the individual is constructed as existing in a vacuum but you have all of this new research to show that if a justice system is to act fairly you shouldn't be looking at individuals as exist- existing in vacuums mm. and you should start thinking about integrating systems of justice you ha- you, you you need to start integrating systems administering justice and mm. justice of different kinds not just criminal justice i'm mm. also talking about social justice and i think and i think perhaps a good way of looking at the death penalty at least that's my reflection after having done this research and the work that i do mm. is not to look at the death penalty as or not to look at punishment as purely a criminal justice issue i think punishment is a social justice issue mm. um and i think because we refuse to see it as a social justice issue is why all of these problems are also arising mm. yeah That's a very interesting point. Uh, to see it as a social justice issue and not just a, as a criminal justice issue. Tell me, Maitre, you mentioned about the intellectual disability and death penalty as well in the report. Uh, uh, but if you'd like to elaborate on this point, right? Um, so we started to look at intellectual disability because there is uh, some research in the US um, where most of death penalty research actually is exists. Mm-hmm. Um, to say that there is a significant um, minority in the death row population which has intellectual disability you also have jurisprudence in the us where um 
and like i said international human rights law that mm. persons with intellectual disability need to be completely exempt from the death penalty and it's because of the nature of the disability now what is the disability so intellectual disability is a developmental disorder which is that the onset of the disability is during when you're growing up um and it indicates two limitations or deficits in intellectual functioning as well as adaptive functioning so intellectual functioning is uh say measured through the iq score part right we all know what iq scores are and they 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 measure intellectual functioning skills such as um reasoning or judgment formation and the second equally important part is adaptive behavior which is how well have you in an age appropriate uh, manner how well have you adapted to your social surrounding and here come in issues of how gullible you might be uh how uh, the your ability to accurately or largely accurately assess risk um judgment formation right so there these are inherent limitations in the disability and because of these limitations because for instance in the in one of the judgments in the us it's called atkins versus virginia uh the court looks at what does the disability lead to mm-hmm. and often times the court uh and it was not just the court talking about it there were briefs submitted by uh organizations and people who work on issues of intellectual disability to say that um it actually creates a what it calls a special risk of wrongful execution that the limitations of the disability such as being extra gullible being uh, unable to form um judgments pertaining to risk all lead to special risk of wrongful execution because inter- and and what's to be also understood is persons with intellectual disability are more easily victimized mm. uh they are not more dangerous and and that's why all of these things were playing on our heads uh, in our minds where we were like where is the jurisprudence in india on that um uh, we have jurisprudence on uh and relatively humane jurisprudence uh on different facets of the death penalty but absolutely nothing on such a crucial factor and i think a system that is this broken needs to reexamine and we realized the extent of its brokenness when we found that 9 out of the 83 prisoners on whom we could conduct the whole uh, assessment had an intellectual disability and mm. not once was this disability brought to the notice of courts mm. it right. three of the prisoners three of these nine prisoners had had their mercy petitions rejected by the president disability still not right yeah yeah so okay you you mentioned here uh, metri in the report that the, the large number of acquittals and commu- uh, and commutations raises questions about our responsibility towards prisoners who are reviled by the system and society but who are ultimately found not worthy of death or worse yeah. are ultimately held not guilty after spending years in captivity now this is a joke you know i think <laughs> what do you think can possibly be done here when they are finally sort of they realize that oh you know they actually not guilty you know after uh, this is actually 
you know, the time when they would develop severe mental health issues because they've been in prison and they've suffered the worst and then they have been let off to go out there and face the world, which perhaps is not ready to accept them or not sees them with the same eyes. And it's the most difficult, this would be the most difficult part of the journey vis-a-vis a prisoner who has been sentenced, given life sentence or even for that matter, death penalties it's a, it's a different issue but this is like an altogether different and uh, a challenging challenging circumstance right and and you're right you're absolutely right that getting out of prison after mm. being told that you don't deserve to live uh, yeah. and living in extremely restrictive conditions the daily indignities that they have to suffer the daily vilification yeah. the narratives outside the courtroom uh, yeah. in public, in media, all of that is playing on their heads till the time they are on, uh, playing on them and play, playing on the psyche till till the, every single day till when they are on death row. And suddenly now they are acquitted. Hmm. Now, as lawyers and as judges and society, uh, we might think, great, this is really great news because hmm. we corrected an injustice. But now what of the person who has to readjust to life outside, not just in terms of um, this rapidly changed world, yeah, but also all of those restrictions that are put on you in prison and particularly more so when you're on death row, all the time you're being watched. um, Every single movement of yours is regulated. Yeah. And suddenly it's not regulated. The, immense adjustment and we don't the we acquit people and that's great but there really does need to be thought put into how do we get them to adjust to their lives now um sometimes courts may pay compensation for wrongful convictions um, Mm. but that's rare Mm. that's not often um Mm. so they and and also something to recall that their families are poorer. Most of their families would be poorer now because um, A, money has gone into legal representation um, Mm. and various other things. Um, B, you might be one of the main earners in the family and you were not there. Uh, So you're you're back to a vulnerable life. Mm. Um, And I think that in itself should, I mean, you know, give us pause. And and often we as society, once we've, you know, like said, okay, no, this person must be hanged. This person has to hang. And when they're acquitted, we, no one tells us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it will only be told in the most disparaging of terms. Mm-hmm. Oh, did the law set off the wrong person? You know, should mm-hmm. this person be let off? That's the, that's the narrative. The narrative is not the law got it wrong. Hmm. This is where perhaps the NGOs can, who are working in the mental health space can come in and help, uh, you know, these guys who have been let off because that would be a terrible, terrible uh, uh, circumstance for them to adjust to the new life and the new world. Yes, but I think my concern with that hmm. is that it is the... St- state's duty it should be the state's responsibility not private 
NGOs. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them might be doing it and that's great. There are NGOs which help with rehabilitation. That's great. But it's ultimately the state's responsibility. It's the state which mm-hmm. held them guilty. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to point this out to the state. They've not even implemented the Mental Health Care Act 2017 till now. That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> we're all fighting the same battle in the same, same boat, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're we're mm. all fight. We're all trying to shake the state up to say, mm. can you please consider and take responsibility for what you are doing? Can you please be accountable to the people mm. you are meant to be serving? It's unshakable. It's terrible. what are we to do you know <laughs> you can do the report i can do a podcast but what else besides this can we do you know but you know i think i think the importance of doing even these things is that at least there are people who are listening to it and mm-hmm. maybe some of them will start thinking about what are we doing because ultimately all these laws all these all the death penalty is given in our name without ever really us having enough information about who is it that we are saying must be hanged we don't know hmm. um we often also don't know the victims yeah. uh, we we assume we know the victims hmm. uh, because assuming that you know the victim and imagining the victim to be of a certain kind is so easy hmm. it makes hmm. for that easy narrative Hmm. but you don't actually know the victim for instance um in the us hmm. you have victims rights groups who ask the death penalty not be given so the victim group we imagine them to be homogenous it's not it it is heterogeneous hmm. there are multiple perspectives and multiple experiences uh multiple ideas of justice and that too needs to i think be looked at to be um engaged with rather than assuming only one narrative because we've assumed a narrative of the evil criminal and we've assumed a narrative of the poor victim we have uh, so much of the women's rights movement and laws on sexual offenses were about please do not say we have lost our honor mm. we are you know it's a violence it's offense it's violence but it's a complicated area of study and it's a it needs serious engagement rather than all of these assumptions that we make on both sides tell me a couple of impact points that you wish to create through this report through this report the idea was to um get conversation started alert the public the law to certain realities and mm-hmm. uh, so in that sense i think uh, one of the main impacts or outcomes that we are hoping to achieve with this report mm-hmm. is for the legal system to reconsider uh, how it gives the death penalty mm-hmm. to make sure that the process is not whittled down to a mere formality because look at what the evidence is showing you mm-hmm. to to reimagine to alert the law that uh capital defense needs to be reimagined that lawyers cannot be the only one and should not be the only one defending death row prisoners it's a you need other skills and these are all relevant skills um i think 
I think the report also raises questions regarding the the whether whether the death penalty is actually constitutionally defensible because mm-hmm. what the law promises in that sense is just punishment mm-hmm. but when you have an overwhelming majority of people undergoing that punishment living with a mental illness it's not just punishment anymore it's punishment plus and that's not what the law is promising mm-hmm. i think it raises serious questions about um our responsibility to towards people who we so quickly hate and to mm-hmm. pause and say there might be more to this story i think mm-hmm. another impact or outcome or conversation that i think we hope to start with this report is what is our response to the families of death row prisoners the dead children mm-hmm. what is our response to the intergenerational impact that the death penalty has mm-hmm. um both as a moral response but a social and legal response as well mm-hmm. um and and i think more towards i think we need to have responsible accountable conversations around accused persons rather than um the this narrative of villainy which suddenly erupts it it dehumanizes the person it dehumanizes and i think somewhere it dehumanizes us uh because mm-hmm. I, i and and i think what's important for this report and the reason i think people should read this report is forget the academic um findings forget its relevance to the law uh mm. read the stories read it for the stories because the stories are actually what tell you how much in common you might have with this person in terms of the fact that both are human mm. both are human yeah that's that's the good point maitri thank you so much i really i really hope that we can take uh, the episode uh, to to lot of people and you know everything is unshakable but we can do whatever we can sort of from our we end can start with uh, yeah. <laughs> what's it called you know uh, before the earthquake there's like sort of tremors shivers yeah <laughs> tremors, we can yeah. <laughs> we can at least do some tremors and see that you know where it where it goes so yeah thank you so yeah. much sir i really appreciate the work that you're doing maitri and um, thank you so much sujita for engaging with the report and inviting me on to your show thank you so much so the key questions here is that what is understanding of mental health when it comes to law and justice and what can we possibly do about it besides of course doing our best to get this on our podcast or having a research paper if you guys have any answers to this you can definitely connect with us and yes we are toying with the idea of bringing some changes in the format of the show so keep track follow us on the sos show pod